We're in Zechariah chapter two. And while y'all are turning there, let's ask the Lord to just bless our time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we go to your word, remind us that we go to your word because it is your word, which means it is truth. Sanctify us by your truth, Father God. Instruct us and grow us. Lord, help us to base ourselves off of your word and not base your word off of ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning in exhortation, in encouragement, and in admonishment. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time that we were together, we looked at the first two chapters of Zechariah's strange night visions. We concluded chapter one with the uh, visions of the four, the four horse and the four horns and the four craftsmen. Major focus of both those visions was the message from God to his people, a message of comfort and a message of assurance. The message is that the Lord would restore his presence among them and that he's going to judge their enemies and deliver them and choose them once again. So this morning, as we move into chapter two, we look at the third vision given to the prophet. And this message speaks a word of deep, satisfying promise and encouragement to the people. And in order to understand how it's that deep, encouraging promise, we have to come back to understand where they were at in Zechariah's day. They were living, if you remember, in broken down ruined city that was once the magnificent city of Jerusalem, the, the dwelling place of God. They, they had come back after 70 years of exile in the foreign nation of Babylon, and, and they're returning to a, a, a destroyed, burned out city, and in the midst of which they, you could still see the wreckage from when they were conquered to begin with. Now they had started to rebuild and the work had stalled and it ground to a halt because discouragement set in. The people faced terrible opposition from the pagan nations around them. They were in a famine because of their disobedience to God. They lived no longer as an independent nation. They were no longer under the rule of the Davidic dynasty of prophecy. But instead they were a puny vassal province of the mighty empire of the Gentile, Darius I, the king of the Medes. It's a pathetic spectacle when you consider it. Once mighty nation, now impoverished, deeply discouraged and wondering, have we lost the favor of God forever? It's into those dire circumstances. God sent his prophet Zechariah. And it's in those dire circumstances that Zechariah had these visions and a message of hope. So starting in verse one of chapter two, it says, I looked up and I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem and to measure its width, its breadth, its width and its length. And then the angel who was speaking with me went out and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, Run and tell this young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because the number of people and animals in it. The declaration of the Lord, I myself will be a wall of fire around it 
and I will be the glory within it. Listen, listen, flee from the land of the north. This is the Lord's declaration for I have scattered you like the four winds of heaven. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen, Zion, escape. You who are living with daughter Babylon, for the Lord of armies says this, in pursuit of his glory, he sent me against the nations plundering you for whoever touches you touches the pupil of my eye. For look, I am raising my hand against them and they will become plunder for their own servants. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me. Daughter Zion, shout for joy, be glad for I'm coming to dwell among you. This is the Lord's declaration. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. I will dwell among you and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. The Lord will take possession of Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and he will once again choose Jerusalem. Let all humanity be silent before the Lord for from his holy dwelling, he has roused himself. What an awesome message from the Lord. And let's, let's dive into this because there's certain things that God wanted the nation of Israel to do. This vision represented some of the things that needed correction. And, and one of the things that they needed, and I think we need as well, is we need to have our hope measured by God's promises, his actual promises. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. In, in verse one, he says, he saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. And when he asked him where he's going, he said to measure Jerusalem, to determine its width and length. It says immediately an angel who was speaking with me went out and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, run and tell this young man that Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and animals in it. The declaration of the Lord is I myself will be a wall around it and I will be the glory within it. You see Zechariah in his third vision, he's, he sees a man, he sees a man with a measuring line in his hand and he was moving because he goes, where are you going? He wasn't just standing there with a measuring line in his hand, standing around, but he was actively about to um, employ that measuring line. And he says, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. He says, and I'm going to measure its width and its length. Your, your translation may say it's width and its breadth. When you measure something's length and width, usually you're measuring the perimeter. So he says, I'm going to go determine its perimeter. Now, at this time in the vision, Zechariah says that the angel that was speaking with him, and that puts that angel separate from the man, okay? So the man and the angel are not the same person. They're not the same in this vision. And then it also says, and another angel went out to meet him, the first angel. And he, the first angel, said to the next angel, he said, run and catch up with the man. And the reason why we get the sense, go catch him before he starts. Catch him before he goes out to do that. Stop him and let him know that Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. It's an odd conversation. Unless you assume that the reason for measuring the perimeter is to plan to build a wall that will encompass the city. And it seems like this man is taking the promise of God. God had already given them the promise to rebuild the city. And this man 
in this vision, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go measure the city so that we can build the wall so that we can make it the same as before. It'll be a city with a wall as a border. It'll be a city with a wall as its protective barrier. You see, in chapter 1, verse 16, God had already told the prophet, in mercy, I've returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. And this is the declaration of the Lord. And then he said, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. The surveyor's measuring line that serves as an emblem of the renewed building effort now becomes, in the second vision here, an image picked up and made use of as this man stands up to go and measure Jerusalem. Now, the identity of the man is not readily given in the interpretation of this vision. But it is most likely that he represents the people of Judah in their enthusiasm for the promised restored city. The second angel that you see that speaks in the remainder of this chapter in the first person is the Lord himself. And that leads us to conclude that although he's not labeled as such here, he's not merely an angel, he's the angel of the Lord. And if we remember how the angel of the Lord is ascribed to his identity, he is a Christophany or an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. He commissions Zechariah's interpreting angel in verse four to run and catch up with the young man with the measuring line because it would seem that the young man's approach to measuring the hope of their expectations is off. We might even go so far as to say his metrics are all wrong. The angel is charged with catching up with the man because their hopes are being measured by their idea of God's promise and not God's promise itself. God promises I will have my house rebuilt and I will dwell there. And the the idea is that the city will be rebuilt and they're going, okay, the city will be rebuilt like it was. The measurement is that of human expectation, conventional wisdom based on past experience. But God's promises concerning his people is far more expansive than any human measurement. And that's why our hope has to be measured by God's promises. Our human measurements, our ideas and everything. God says in Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Conventional wisdom. Let me give you an idea of what conventional wisdom says. You see in 1983, there was an aging sheep farmer from Australia. His name was Cliff Young. He took his place at the starting line among the athletes at the beginning of what is known as an ultra marathon. An ultra marathon, you may know, or may not know. Most of us know that a marathon is 23 miles, or the Boston is 26. An ultra marathon is 545 miles long. It takes about seven days to complete. The athletes sleep at the side of the road on the race course, and they sleep for periods of six hours, and then they run for 18 And then they sleep for six and they run for 18 on and on and on until they finish. It's quite an ordeal. And so as Cliff Young lined up to begin the race, he stood out from the crowd. Okay. The crowd, they're, they're all dressed in the latest running gear, all the, the latest gear, all the, you know, that, the, what, what are they, uh, body glide so that you don't chafe and everything when you're running long distances and things like that. They got the running shoes, they got their sponsors. And here's Mr. Young. He's wearing overalls work boots with galoshes over the work boot, just in case it rained. He's 
30 years older than their oldest competitor. And it was the first competitive race he's ever run in. Actually, he didn't run at all, to be honest. He shuffled. He barely lifted his feet from the ground. And so as you might expect, when the starting pistol fired, Mr. Young was left in the dust. And pretty soon he'd fallen way behind the other runners. But while the other runners slept, you know that six hours sleep at the side of the road? Well, he continued shuffling along. He'd never been told the way to run an ultramarathon is that you sleep for six hours and 18 hours you run. On his farm, when a storm approached, he'd have to try to beat the weather and he would run down all of his sheep on a 2,000 acre farm on foot, outrunning the weather, and that would usually take him three days. And on those three days, he never stopped running. He ran for three whole days straight. And so he just kept going. So on the last night of the race, while the other athletes were sleeping, Cliff Young passed the opposition. He ran with his distinctive shuffling gait for five solid days. And he not only won the race, but he beat the ultra marathon record by two whole days. All of the conventional wisdom of the world would say Cliff Young should lose. He had work boots on his feet, overalls on his back. He's only shuffling. He didn't even rest. There's no way, according to conventional wisdom, that he could have won. Conventional wisdom of us as humans does not always provide the best metrics to measure how things should be done or how they could be done. Zechariah's vision is a reminder to the people of his time. Do not base your hope upon your understanding of the promise or of your conventional wisdom for the promise. Base your expectation, base your hope upon God's spoken and declared promise. They were expecting and hoping for a city like the one they had prior to exile, walled in a fortress. What they were looking for in hope is not what God had promised. God is promising a vastly populous city, so populous that it cannot have walls in order for it to be able to contain the overflow within its boundaries. You see, God is promising not only a city for them again, but that it would receive his divine blessing. They weren't just going to barely survive. They were going to thrive. He also declared the city does not need a protective wall. Not because they'll be without protection or safety, but God is promising that he is their safety and their security. He will be their wall and their glory within. So the measuring line of verse one implies hope found in conventional thinking about the kingdom of God, a city protected by walls, people limited to the return to exiles only, And the message of the angel of the Lord is that the kingdom of God is a countless multitude. How big is your vision of the kingdom of God? Because it's going to affect how you share the gospel of Christ. A kingdom that needs no walls, or is your vision merely human construction? Back then, the strength of a city is measured by its walls. It seems silly to do that nowadays, right? Because modern warfare and all, like it doesn't matter if your city has walls or not. Um, We have our own issue though in today's standards 
that we want to measure our churches by. We have human standards. And, and, and as we use those human standards, what we do is we miss the hope found in the promises of God. There's a, a Bible commentator uh, and, and pastor. His name's Rick Phillips. And in his commentary on Zechariah, he calls it the ABCs of church growth. ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. That's how we measure church strength. That's how we say this church is, is thriving. This church is doing well. We got all the people. We got all the buildings. We got all the funds. That's how we know if God is with us. Because if you don't have any of those, then that means God's not with you. But we need to be reminded here that the true measure of the church has nothing to do with scale, nothing to do with wealth, nothing to do with power, and everything to do with the presence of the glory of the living God. See, the hope of the church is not in its building or its finances or even in the number of people. The hope of the church is found in God's promise to dwell in the church. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are here this morning, I want you to know and to understand and to believe that God dwells in you now. If you are in Christ Jesus, we need the presence of his glory dwelling among us. That's where our hope is based. We could be without everything else, but if we have the presence of God, we have everything we need and we need to live like it. But that comes at a cost because it's risky business trusting God, isn't it? in our individual lives, not just in our, in our corporate lives as a church, but in our individual lives, trusting God feels like risky business, but I guarantee you it's not as risky as we make it out to be. Trusting God's promises can feel like you're showing up to an ultra marathon, wearing only overalls and work boots on your feet. It's hardly adequate for the demands of the race. We come up with things like life is just challenging and you want me to trust and hope in, in, in your ancient book that has old wisdom in it and truth. I prefer to stick with the conventional worldly wisdom of self-protection. And that's where we start to, we hold ourselves back. We put people at arm's length. We say, I'm going to keep my heart well out of reach. I'm not going to allow other people to hurt me. I'm not going to open myself up to others because it's, it, it makes me vulnerable. I prefer my self-protection to the risky business of trusting that God is my ultimate protection. And we, we have those who try to manufacture their comforts and their security. And in, in the end, you know what they find? They have no comfort. They have no security. While those who are trusting in the Lord, they run their race and they go to the finish line and we go, how did they do that? Other runners are falling behind and they're running the race. They're crossing the line. They're winning the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Here's how they do that. Their hope is in God's promise of protection. They don't tell God how they have to be protected. They trust that God will protect them. He is a wall of fire around them. He is his promise of presence, his glory in their midst. They know these promises aren't abstract. They're not ancient. They're not vague. And if we knew that too, oh, the power and the freedom that we could live with. They know that God has kept his word and God's going to continue to keep his word. That is the beauty of prophecy. To see what God has spoken long ago and that he's upheld throughout the annals of time. You see what God has done, what lengths he's gone to save and to keep and to make the, you his, to make the people of Israel his. 
They know in light of the cross that the promises of God are more solid, more real, more secure than any self-protection we want to hold on to. So I'm asking you this morning, let your hope be measured by the promises of God. God also needed the Israel to understand extreme measure of urgency for his warnings. He needed an extreme measure of urgency for God's warnings. In verse six, it says, listen, listen, flee from the land of the north. This is the Lord's declaration for I've scattered you like the four winds. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen, Zion, escape you who are living in daughter Babylon. For the Lord of armies says this in pursuit of his glory. He sent me against the nations plundering you. For whoever touches you touches the pupil of my eye. For look, I'm raising my hand against them and they will become plunder for their own servants. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me. So as the vision continues, we see several calls from God and it requires an extreme amount of urgency. He says, listen, listen. Other translations go, ho, ho, up, up. And and it's a call to action. As in, wake up and flee from the land of the north. You see, in Zechariah's day, few of those who were carried into captivity into the Babylonian empire ever returned back to their promised land. The Lord is calling his people. He's calling them to come back to their land. And the sad reality, though, is that most exiles were more comfortable in Babylon. They didn't want to endure the challenge of being involved in building the work of God. The Lord is admonishing the Jews still in Babylon to leave the city, to join the remnant in Jerusalem. They were desperately needed in their own land. And though they thought they were safe and secure in their comforts of the pagan society, he's saying you're not. Babylon was now under Persian rule and soon Persia would be judged for her sins as well. God is warning them to get out while they can. They need to heed the warning this time. Remember when God warned them the last time and they go, ah, that's never going to happen. You guys are just crazy. Y'all are just doom and gloom kind of people. How is God going to come against? Look at all the blessing we're experiencing. How's God going to come against us? And they ignored it and they didn't have any measure of urgency and God's judgment caught up with them and they were carried away. You see, when God provides a warning, the measure of our urgency must become extreme because he does not make idle threats. He doesn't just give warnings just to give them. He's not just like this annoying sound. Have you ever set an alarm and then you choose to ignore the alarm for whatever you set it for? And now it's just something that buzzes and bothers you and and you're just too lazy to like turn it off. I have reminders that I set up for a lot of things and I just ignore it every day. I just ignore it every day. And you know what I'm doing? I'm teaching myself to ignore the warning. I'm teaching myself to ignore that reminder. The more you ignore and the more you put off God's warnings, the more you're teaching yourself to ignore God. The admonishment of the Lord, it's not necessarily saying that every Jew who remained in Babylon is out of his will. Because we have to remember that God uses his people among pagan nations all the time. Joseph in Egypt. We had Esther and Mordecai in Persia. Daniel in Babylon. With Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. We had Nehemiah also in Persia. They were in their places of influence that God had given them that they would do the work that God has planned for them. The admonishment from the Lord is not you're out of my will if you're among the pagan nations. God's word is that you are out of my will when it comes to the work of the Lord because 
God's warning requiring extreme measured urgency is do not put comfort, do not put vocation, do not put security or anything else ahead of doing God's work and answering God's calling. And then he says, listen, Zion, listen up, Zion, escape you who are living with daughter Babylon. Now, Babylon in the Bible, not only represents a city, but it's also an idea. Jerusalem is the idea of God's city and Babylon is the idea of the city of the world. The symbolic significance of Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis 11 and it stretches all the way to Revelation. It's a common theme throughout the entire scriptures. In Revelation 18, Babylon stands for the revived Roman Empire, the pagan world, the world system, and and, and everything that stands adamantly opposed to God. As well as opposed to the people of God. Babylon, according to Barry Webb of Moore Theological College, he says, is the world in its determined, organized hostility to God, a world on which God has already passed judgment. It's significant to understand because to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem is essentially to break affiliation with the world, rejecting God and instead fleeing to God and his mercy and his protection. It's like the pilgrim in Bunyan's famous story, the pilgrim's progress, who flees the city of destruction and runs to the celestial city. Or it's like the biblical account of Abraham as he gets up and he leaves the land of Ur. It's to cast in your lots with God, with his people, and to set out. And and, and to be resolute for the new Jerusalem, to be resolute for the city of God. And the warning of God to flee from Babylon is because he's raising his hand against them. He says, whoever touches you, whoever touches you, Israelites, my people touches the pupil of my eye. How many people do you let touch your pupil? Anybody? Like, do you even touch your own pupil? No, because it's that sensitive. It's that precious. It's that necessary for you. The warning is to come out because God is coming against them. This warning has an expiration because sooner or later, God is going to fulfill his promise. And if they're still in there, they still remain. They're going to get caught up in it. And Spurgeon comments about the pupil of his eye. He says, he esteems them as much as men value their eyesight and is careful to protect them from injury. As men are careful to protect the apple of their eye, the pupil of the eye is the tenderest part of the tenderest organ and very fitly sets forth the inexpressible tenderness of God's love. Any nation that touches Israel touches the pupil of God's eye, the apple of God's eye. Physiologists tell us that the quickest reflex in the entire human body is the reflex to cover the eye when something is coming. And I agree with John Corson. He says, that is how quick God is to protect his own. And this is why God gives the warning. And the warning has to be carried out with a measure of extreme urgency. And then in the last part of this vision, what we see is that there, we have to have praise measured by God's presence. God calls for his people to praise. He says in verse 10, daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad for I am coming to dwell among you. This is the Lord's declaration. 
Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people and I will dwell among you and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. He says the Lord will take possession of Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and he will once again choose Jerusalem. Let all humanity be silent before the Lord for from his holy dwelling, he has roused himself. God is calling. He's calling for shouts of acclamation. He's coming to dwell among them. And I don't know about you, but if God were to show up today to dwell among us, I would be praising and I hope you would join with because I long for God to come and dwell among us once again. I envy Adam and Eve, not in their choice that they made, but that they walked with God in the cool of the evening. I long for that day. His presence will once again be among his people. He's promised it. As he'd done in the tabernacle and the temple, he especially dwelt among the people of Israel. He's promising, I will dwell among you again. But you know what? That promise extends out to the entire world. That he will dwell among all the nations. You know, Ezekiel, in his prophecy, he closes his book with a description of the new city and temple. And he names the new city. He names that city Jehovah Shammah. And it means the Lord is there. In Ezekiel 48, 35, the perimeter of the city will be six miles. And the name of the city from that day on will be the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah. This is not the time to be cool and passive like, oh yeah, God's coming to dwell. No, that's cool, man. A lot of us like to, we, we withhold our expression of joy or excitement or any of that because it's cool, right? You don't want to be uncool. When I was growing up in high school, if you like showed expression over anything, like you were uncool at that very point, you're not allowed to get excited about anything. So it's, yeah, that's cool. I never fit in because I couldn't do that. I can't hold in my excitement. I'm sure you're aware of that by now. It's the time to be shouting. It's the time to be praising because what a great and glorious thing to consider that God, once again, dwelling in the midst of his people, once separated from people forever by sin, he's accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross and the sacrifice for sin and and the punishment of sin and and the wrath of God being satisfied through Christ Jesus that he can bridge that gap that stood between him and humanity. And he promises that when he comes in judgment that he's gonna dwell among those who are in Christ Jesus. And that also he's going to dwell among his people who at that time, on that day, they will accept the Lord as their Messiah. It's prophesied in scripture that all of Israel will turn, accept Jesus as their Messiah, the ones who make it through Jacob's time of trouble, known as the Great Tribulation. I'm going to challenge us here this morning because this thought came in, as I was studying this, as I was thinking about worship and praise, Great praise is measured by God's presence. Praise for God should grow with your proximity to God. If you don't praise God, you can't claim to be close to God. The closer you are to God, the more you can't contain your praise for God. And praise is going to follow on that day as many come to join themselves to the Lord, as many come his people, as they leave Babylon, as they leave that world system and they join themselves to God in his new city. And he's going to dwell among them. They're not secondhand people. Sometimes we can make ourselves out to be secondhand people. 
like I've been through all this and I'm, I'm, I'm not like the regular Christians, you know, who grew up Christian and stayed Christian and just remained Christian their whole life. I have this, this crazy testimony and I have this big change and you're not a secondhand person because you've come from a past on the same flip side, the people that grew up Christian, they're like, well, I don't really have a great testimony because I didn't have like this really crazy past and where God has saved me from all this. I just, followed God in my life because that's how I was raised and that's what I chose to stick with and all that. You're not a secondhand Christian either. Like understand that God is saying, I'm coming to dwell and live among and live among Israel. It's a messianic promise. It's referring to the time when the Messiah is going to come to rule on the throne of David as promised. And in fact, right here in, in Zechariah, you might have both advents of Christ in view. And if so, the emphasis here is on the second coming, the one that we are waiting for, that we look for. On that day, that day is a shortened way of referring to the day of the Lord. On that day, he's going to come and judge the nations. He's going to fulfill his covenants and he's going to set up the millennial kingdom. And in the millennium, many people from many nations are going to worship the Lord. That phrase in your Bible, the Holy Land, We've always heard Israel referred to as the Holy Land all the time. Did you know that this is the only place in the Bible where you find it? That's the only designation for Israel is the Holy Land. It's found right here. And it's the Lord's inheritance. And again, Jerusalem is going to be chosen again by God. And it's chosen as God's choice for the world's capital. So in, in light of this vision, in light of what it meant to the Israelites we can take application for ourselves and we need to ask ourselves, how are we measuring? I like what Alexander McLaren said. The measure of our discord with the world is the measure of our accord with the Savior. The closer we get to God, the more we leave the world. but what about our other measurements? Do we measure based upon our expectations, based upon our conventional wisdom, based upon our own metrics? Or are we measured upon God's word, which promises that it's far and above anything we could ever hope for or even consider? I encourage you, use the word of God as your measurement. Use Jesus as your standard. And then I want to ask you, is the measure of your urgency aligned with the urgency of God's warnings and prophecy? Do we really believe that God can come back at any day? Do we believe the warnings of Christ that he's left for the church? That look, when I come back, it's going to be as a thief in the night and I want to find you working. Because if we heed those warnings properly, we're going to be out doing the things that he's called us to do. We're going to be living our life for him. We're going to be sharing the gospel. We're going to be knowing that time is short and people need to be saved. How do we respond to the promise of God's coming to, to, to his dwelling place? God is saying, I'm going to come here and I'm going to dwell with you. How do we respond to that? I have a better question. How are you responding to the fact that he dwells in you right now? Do you belong to his people? Are you in Christ Jesus here this morning? 
because he declares that those who are in Christ Jesus at the moment in which they place their faith and trust in Christ, they, all their sins were forgiven. They were declared righteous and holy at that moment, justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then a proper dwelling place for the Holy Spirit who comes inside and fills you with his presence. You now become the temple of the very living God. He's with you wherever you go. Even when you think you're alone, God is in you. He's your protection. He's your wall of fire around you. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Or are you still living among the daughter of Babylon? Is Jesus your savior? If, you're, if he's your savior, understand this. You are the apple of his eye, known as the church, his bride. And if none of those apply to you, I want you to know right here, right now, there is no more question that requires more of an extreme urgency to answer than you could ever be asked. And to answer it positively is to know eternal security and to answer in the negative is to knowingly continue to face certain and terrible judgments that are promised and despite the warning to flee from Babylon and to come to God. And that is, have you come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you forgiven of your sins? Because you cannot be a citizen of heaven. You cannot be the people of God. You cannot be the apple of his eye if you have not first come to the foot of the cross and declared yourself worthless before Christ and asked for his forgiveness and for him to be the Lord and Savior in your life. To quote a famous Arthur, J.R. Tolkien, one does not simply walk into heaven. You have to come through the foot of the cross. We're going to have the worship team come back up, and I want you to use this time during this last song to allow God to evaluate your heart. I want you to take inventory of what you are measuring for your expectations of the promises of God, what your urgency is compared to the warnings of God. And if God is speaking to you and, and you're realizing, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of God's people. I'm not a citizen of heaven. I, I'm still steeped in Babylon. I want you to use this time to come before the Lord. And as he reveals where you're at, I want you to submit to his Holy Spirit. And he's going to lead you to, to come and ask for forgiveness. And you know what the great thing about our God is? He stands waiting. Ready to receive any and all who would come and ask for forgiveness. Who would be confessing of their sins and asking for forgiveness. Believing in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Believing in the fact that Christ died and rose again and promises new life. And it's in that declaration of faith in Christ that God declares that you shall be saved. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and I pray that as your spirit goes forth, as, as we sing this last song, Lord, I pray that we would, if we know you, Father God, I pray that the praise in our heart would just be increased by that much measure, Father God, as we consider our closeness with you. And then, Lord, I also pray for those that don't know you, that your spirit would be at work bringing their heart to life so that as we sing this song, they could join with it and it can be the song of their heart as well, praising you with great joy and acclamation as you have come to dwell in them. In Jesus' name, amen.